this 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 checks out. Yeah. I'm Rachel Siegel. I'm an economics reporter here at The Post, and I'm with producer Bishop Sand. We're standing out in front of an office building in Alexandria, Virginia, about a 20-minute drive away from our newsroom in D.C. Okay, so the building is definitely giving off the vibe of suburban office park. It's flat, looks kind of like two stories, dark, dark windows that you can't even see through, and then a layer of red brick. You wouldn't really know it from standing on the street right here, but this place is really at the heart of something that's got economists and real estate owners, city planners, mayors, banks, in a state of dread, maybe even doom. Outside of this office space, I see an old sign printed on the window. The United States Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, the government agency responsible for enforcing laws against financial market manipulation. This isn't only an old office building. It's an old government office building. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Yeah. I mean, that that does match what, you know, like an image of a old government building. Office buildings like this are standing vacant. And there are so many cities that are trying to figure out what to do about it, what to do with this space. This isn't just a emergency, pandemic, remote work situation. This is something that could bring a major change to cities all over the country. Some people are even calling it the urban doom loop. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Tuesday, October 10th. I'm Rachel Siegel. I'm your guest host. Today, we explore the urban doom loop and whether there could be a way out. We just saw an empty office building firsthand. We did. And, you know, I see them all over the city. So do I. So what's going on with them? You know, in this reporting, I called a bunch of people to ask exactly that, including this economics professor, Stan Van Neuerberg. I'm a professor of finance and real estate at Columbia Business School. Who coined the term urban doom loop. It seems like this has definitely captured sort of the public imagination. So I'm going with it. (laughs) And the picture I'm about to paint in some ways is the doomiest of the doom scenarios. It doesn't have to turn out this way. But it starts with an office that just doesn't have people coming in to work anymore. Maybe that business doesn't need to pay this lease. It doesn't need to hold on to all of this office space. You know, if my workers are only coming in two or three days a week, maybe there are ways of reorganizing my office where I can do with less space. And maybe they renew their lease, but they renew it for half as much space as what they had before. All of a sudden, you've got the owner that was relying on that lease for income. It needed that rent. And this is the owner of of the building. The owner of the building that all of a sudden has this empty space running through it. And so now the office owner has to make a really tough decision, which is, you know, do they come up with additional money out of their own pocket? Or do they potentially say, you know what, Um, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to give the building, I'm going to give the keys of this building to the bank. And, you know, good luck to you, bank. Uh, You now own this office building. 
well, the bank is also going to be relying on that payment. It wants its money back, and it probably has a date that it's expecting to get its money back. Hmm. And if the company or the building owner that it's working with suddenly can't make that payment, well, that's a problem for the bank and maybe something that the bank is going to have to sort out before that deadline comes due. Hmm. And that could be a problem like for other banks, too, if enough banks you know, are in trouble, then it could be somewhat of a crisis, maybe. It could be if it piles up. There are a lot of regional and sort of mid-sized banks that actually have a lot of loans around commercial real estate. Those are some of the ones that economists are keeping the closest eye on. And so they're heavily exposed. And so the question will be, you know, what will be the fallout for the financial sector? And um, is that potentially sort of a new financial crisis? But like, there's other consequences too, not just banks. Yeah. So the loop really looks at some of the consequences for the city government too. So again, let's think of this empty building. Maybe that sort of starts to spread. Maybe if there's another one of these buildings down the block that's in a similar situation, maybe the coffee shop in between those two buildings just suddenly doesn't have people coming in anymore. The salad place around the corner doesn't have people coming in for lunch because people just don't come downtown to work. This can sort of start to ooze. Hmm. A lot of cities are really reliant on taxes that come from properties, that come from wages, that come from people spending money in their daily lives when they're running to get that cup of coffee or running to get that salad or commuting into the office. Mm. These are all things that go into city coffers and that cities really rely on to be able to make their budgets. What would then happen if the city has less money in its coffers? Well, the cities would have to make decisions. That's right. I think, you know, the way this often transpires is that um, property tax revenues ultimately need to be made up by the local government in the form of either higher taxes on other stuff or lower spending, because at the end of the day, governments need to balance their budget. And if its budgets are set up in a way to really rely on that kind of funding, it could mean less basic services. Less money for public safety, for transportation, for education, for sanitation. In other words, more crime, more grime. All of that makes the city a less attractive place to live. People move out, especially people with other options. Typically, higher-skilled workers move out. These are folks that are responsible for a larger share of income tax revenue as well. And so now, you know, there's less demand. There are fewer people there. Value of real estate falls even more. Property tax revenues fall even more. Further budget cuts, more people leaving. And so we get into this vicious cycle where the the fiscal health of the city starts to spiral down. It's almost like a contagion that can spread through buildings and offices and real estate into really core parts of how cities are organized. Mm. I think you need to picture something like what happened in, you know, New York City in the 70s, lost like a, a million people between 1970 and 1980. Uh, it had a fiscal crisis. It was on the verge of bankruptcy. You could also more recently picture what happened in Detroit, which also sort of lost uh, an, an important industry and a lot of population. That's the sort of scenarios that that we're talking about, uh, which then sort of take decades to to reverse and and to recover from and and sort of only with a lot of hard work and and maybe a lot of luck do cities actually recover from those situations are there ways of like measuring how the downtowns are you know 
thriving or not thriving right now? How doomed they are right now? Is there any kind of data you can look at? One of the things that can be really telling is occupancy rates. So, you know, nationally, that rate averages around 87%. But there are some medium-sized cities that are especially vulnerable to this kind of loop that have much lower rates. In Oklahoma City, for example, it's just 71%. In Memphis and St. Louis, it's only 76%. Hmm. When one of these large local employers in a second-tier city all of a sudden decides to close down its office, that's potentially a much bigger deal for for that medium-sized city. There are some disclaimers that go with the urban doom loop hypothesis. The first big one is that it doesn't necessarily have to happen. A lot of cities are still leaning on really high levels of stimulus money that they got earlier in the pandemic. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The other gets into the really wonky minutiae of local tax structures, that they lean really heavily on taxes from commercial properties, or they lean really heavily on taxes from commuters and their wages. That could put them in more of a difficult spot than others. So some of them seem to be more resilient than others? Some could be more resilient than others. Some could know that they are more exposed, but still know that they have time to react. Mm. You know, there's sort of a scenario where there is early intervention and uh, there's forward thinking by city leaders where this is sort of seized as an opportunity to reimagine what the city of the future looks like. It's absolutely clear that there are just too many offices and not enough people or businesses to fill them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of an interesting question whether we have 10% too much office or 30% too much office or somewhere in between. But it's, you know, we're going to need some office in the future, right? At the same time, 10% of the office stock is a lot, right? That's sort of 10 years worth of construction or maybe 20 years worth of construction, too much office. So you can just sort of get rid of that uh, in an instant. So the question is what to do with all of those buildings. Do you tear them down or do you do something sort of out-of-the-box and creative that turns them into something else. Uh, maybe we bring some higher education into these buildings, maybe some medical office, maybe some uh, some life science. Uh, you know, one, one idea that you often hear about is sort of this idea of the playground city. Maybe cities will become places where people, uh, you know, have fun. Maybe they're sort of a little bit more tourism-oriented. Uh, maybe they're sort of more amenity-oriented as opposed to production-oriented. Um, you know, maybe these places also become sort of, if at all possible, try to become a little bit more inclusive, you know, for example, through the creation of affordable housing. And so to the extent that cities are encouraging this, potentially financially subsidizing this, uh, this doom loop can, can sort of be halted in its tracks, potentially. After the break, we go back to that empty SEC office building and we'll walk around to the other side and go through an incredibly creative conversion. We'll be right back. This very ornate um, entrance, basically. Okay, so we're back in Virginia at the old SEC building. Again, I was with producer Bishop Sand. We met our colleague, Teo Armas. Maybe. Hey, Teo. You want me to do like a who are you and what do you do? Or Well, you guys already clearly know each other. <laughs> oh, yeah, we do. <laughs> 
we're, we're acquainted, yeah. Teo covers politics and regional issues in Northern Virginia for The Post. What do you think? I mean, uh, I had a pu- truly genuine reaction when we pulled in. That was not what I was expecting. <laughs> when we got here, we saw this pagoda-like structure on the front of this government building. There are two giant elephants on either side of the door. I feel like if you're not really paying attention, maybe you won't really blink, but definitely everything around it is sort of of a, of a different era. Yeah. And out the front door comes Stephanie Chan, the owner of this incredible spa. Thank you. Welcome to Bayan. We go in the front door. There's a check-in desk. There are some locker rooms on the second floor, kind of above our heads. There's a ton of natural light. It's clear that they have really maximized the window space here. How does it feel? It feels very soothing. There's a really nice smell. There's a lot of light. The tile is very light. Are these new as well? Yes, these are all new. All the floors, the tiles, all new. We did import many of them from Spain. Hello, guys. From Spain, Italy. We make our way to the locker rooms, put on some slippers. The air is crisp, and, I mean, it really felt like we were in a spa, which we were. We walk in, and... One of the first things we see is this massive pool that Stephanie has built in to the ground floor of this office. The pool has chairs built into it. It has this tile that says, just like heaven. So we opened this up, made, tried to create this more atrium feel, brought in these skylights because it was a very, it's what you would expect an office to look like. And that natural light is not something that is high priority in office spaces. <laughs> You can get up from there and go into a cold plunge. Which I did try this weekend. I lasted 10 seconds this time. (laughs) Oh my God. Or you can go up to a different snack bar and get a smoothie or a fresh juice. Some smoothies, acai bowls. One of many sauna rooms. The Himalayan salt room. Gold sauna, yes. This is our charcoal sauna. This room is our lowest soil sauna. It's our hottest room and largest sauna room. Can we go in real quick? Are you ready? 145 degrees. Uh... Wow. Um, That's hot. Yeah, there are these mats all over the floor. I can definitely feel the the temperature having changed. And um, I guess... Like, in my nose. Do you remember what was here before? All office spaces, office spaces, yeah. Like, this is somebody's cubicle. Right. <laughs> you can wander upstairs for your spa appointment, go to the gym. You can also see our wellness calendar. And if you make it all the way to the top, you can go to the infinity pool on the roof, which is looking out onto the tree line that, again, makes you feel like you are not in an Arlington office park, but somewhere very far away. I really didn't, like... (laughs) It feels like a total oasis, to be honest. I feel like you're out in the woods. 
What's interesting to me about this amazing spa is that it is this incredible conversion. You know, what Stephanie did was she took this government building and she turned it into a kind of oasis. After our tour through the spa, we went to the other side of the building, and the other side of the building is very different. Stephanie took us through a sort of back hallway, back through parts of the building that very clearly had a different feel, and it spit us out in this dark, sad, very hot, empty office. Dark and that really seemed to epitomize the sort of worst case scenario of what empty office space can look and feel like. No, I mean, this is the federal oh. government. Uh, <laughs> oh, there is no light in here. This just feels, yeah, this is. And even though it was only a couple of yards away from the infinity pool or the smoothie bar, it felt much further than that. When you walked into the other space for the first time, is this this is what it looked like? Yes. Just, wow. A bunch of all of this just yeah. everywhere. Yeah. What did you think when you first stepped into the the unrenovated space? I also was I, I couldn't really see it because this is what you were standing in. But once I saw the square footage and learned about the structures and whatnot, I said, okay, I, we could let's see how we can make this work. Now that you are on this side of it, would you recommend this process to someone who is, you know, looking at a vacant office space and trying to not at the scale? No. Maybe start small Mm. because you know the deals that you can get right now on commercial real estate is great. It might work really remarkably for her space. It wouldn't necessarily work for the empty offices just down the block from where we are now. It just remains to be seen. There are so many examples in this new version of the economy that will just be tested over time. We said goodbye to Stephanie and stayed in that empty SEC building to talk a bit more with Teo about these conversions. So, I mean, I've never seen an office building turned into a pool and saunas and a spa before, but but the general idea, right, is not new. Is that right? I mean, yeah. And this has been happening for, for decades, for a really long time. You know what? Some use, maybe something industrial, kind of goes out of fashion. It's no longer economically viable, and something else moves in. Uh, you know, there's a mall in Alexandria that's turning into a hospital. Mm. Uh, you can think about sort of old industrial areas that are close to sort of downtown cores. So, you know, places that were maybe once factories and are now food halls or, you know, they were factories and now they're lofts for artists or they're really trendy, expensive apartments. Um, I think part of what someone like Stephanie is doing and what other people are doing in similar projects is just bringing that same ethos to empty offices. Yeah. You've got the space that we're standing in, right? The, you know, out of use, vacant sad office and then just a couple feet away a spa does that to you stand out as like this is a solution you know this is something that will be able to transform these spaces i don't think it's the solution but i think it's a solution um you know everyone is basically saying there's no silver bullet to solving the office vacancy crisis but i think you know if you add a spa to 
you know, an old office building getting turned into a school to an old office building getting turned into a brewery, I think then you're sort of starting to get a little bit closer to actually using up that space. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're seeing at the local government level that either incentivizes some of this or is just trying to kind of grapple with this question with what to do about empty offices? I think a lot of local governments are basically saying, you know, the office to residential conversion piece is is taking um, sort of supply off the market. And I think part of what they're trying to do, at least as it was explained to me, is trying to increase demand and saying, you know, if a doggy daycare or an arcade isn't going to set up, you know, in an empty office building, let's say in, in the Clarendon neighborhood in Arlington, because it's, you know, there's all this red tape, let's strip that away. Um, and that can increase demand. And, you know, maybe there will be an arcade company that says, look, this is a neighborhood that a lot of people live in. Uh, we want to expand our arcade into Northern Virginia. Um, and suddenly they can do that a lot more easily. One of the areas uh, Arlington is actually looking at really closely that I think is really interesting uh, is vertical farming, a sort of indoor urban farming, uh, you know, which can definitely sort of help address a lot of supply issues in, in the agriculture world. But basically looking at empty office spaces and these new technologies that allow you to like literally grow herbs and tomatoes and zucchini in the type of space that we're standing in. Um, and making it all easier for that to happen. There's actually, um, in Chicago, a really fascinating example. Um, literally around the corner from Chicago City Hall, it's actually the same building that Grubhub has its commercial headquarters in. <laughs> okay. um, there is uh, like an urban farming venture um, that is looking at you know potentially leasing out some of that space to grow tomatoes. Wow. That is a little nicer to picture, like tomatoes growing up the wall here. <laughs> Makes it a little, feels like something's actually living in here. Yeah, yeah. Great. Awesome. Cool. That's great. All right. Okay. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much. No, absolutely. Thank you guys for coming out. I hope this was helpful. Um, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Teo Armas covers Northern Virginia for The Post. This episode was produced by Bishop Sand and mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work that we do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe.